over two years, I preached on a different passage every week from uh, Mission 119, and uh, we really heard God do great things. Uh, after that, we had, of course, Advent, and then we had our core value series, which we just finished up last week. So uh, coming out of this time of, of, of series and long-standing things like Mission 119, I just had such a strong desire in my heart to preach through a book of the Bible, you know, to, to just go from beginning to end, not topical, to see what the Bible has to say for itself. And so I began to pray about that. I was, I was having such a, feeling so drawn to the teachings of Christ. I was thinking about going through a gospel. Um, my, my nine-year-old Olivia was suggesting we go through the book of Ruth. Uh, my wife was talking about how much she loved Galatians. She's been doing a very life-giving study through Galatians. Uh, so after all of this prayer, uh, what I really came out of the prayer closet with was uh, that what God has for us during this season is First and Second Thessalonians. So First and Second Thessalonians, uh, we're going to be going through these two rather short letters of Paul. And this is something that uh, I brought to the elders and we prayed on it. And we all kind of agreed this is what God's leading us to do during this season. So we're going to be starting... Uh, this series this morning, kind of talking about the background of Thessalonians. And, uh, and on Wednesdays, I hope to hear more of you as we, um, as we are chewing on this, sharing what you're learning and what sticks out to you, either from the sermons on Sunday or in your own personal study. So we're going to be going through Thessalonians. So one of the, one of the first things, uh, I don't know if you're like me, but when I'm listening to a book on tape, or I'm listening to someone preach, or I'm listening to a, you know whatever it might be, when someone pronounces a word funny, it gets it gets drives me crazy. Um, and and then especially if they use that word a lot, you know, me and Jackie, I'm trying to think of the word that we listen to. Um, oh, we are listening to a book, and I apologize if this is how you pronounce the word, you'll be offended. Please don't be offended. We're listening to a book. Um, by John and Stacey Eldridge, and Stacey Eldridge was narrating it, and she said, instead of vulnerable, V-U-L-N, she said vulnerable, V-U-N, vulnerable. And if you know John and Stacey Eldridge, they say the word vulnerable a lot. And in fact, it's kind of what they're all about, being vulnerable before God. Except for they're not. They're about being vulnerable before God. And I think it's a different pronunciation from a different part of the country. I've, I've never heard anyone say that in real life. Uh, but maybe they do where they live. But every time me and Jackie heard her say the word vulnerable, we'd laugh. And really, all the time, we're always trying to work this word in, into our conversations at home because we think it's so funny. We're trying to be vulnerable with one another and such. Um, so when I hear a sermon series and they're pronouncing a name or a book of the Bible in a way I'm not used to, it drives me nuts. I just want to say to the speaker, like, don't you know how to pronounce this word? So... The, the, the Thessalonians word that I think it has some wide interpretations is the place that this is written to, Thessalonica or Thessalonica. Which is it? I've heard both. I've heard people say Thessalonica. I've heard people say Thessalonica. And I didn't want to just shoot from the hip and annoy somebody. So I actually looked into it, did some research. And really the internet is kind of split on this, whether it's Thessalonica or Thessalonica. And, uh, but it seems the scholars are saying that's pronounced Th Thessalonica with a strong I-K-E sound at the end. So I'm sorry if you say Thessalonica. I'll be saying Thessalonica. Uh, I'm just trying to be courteous to all of you. And you probably think I'm a real snob now, but I promise I'm not. Um, just, just being vulnerable with you this morning. Um, so... The church in Thessalonica was founded by Paul with assistance from Silas and Timothy. 
um, during one of his during his second great missionary journey in the book of Acts. We read through the book of Acts a few years ago. Gosh, almost four or five years ago now. Um, well, three, maybe maybe he started it four years ago. And it was written during Paul's second missionary journey uh, from Corinth um, around 50 AD, which is about 20 years after Jesus Christ came, was crucified and resurrected. So 20 years after the first Easter, Paul writes this letter to Thessalonica from Corinth. So we're, I'm going to read, read from a small passage of scripture here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, in Acts 17, 1 through 10, you can see the background of Paul founding this church in Thess Thessalonica. It says this, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollyana, now, now I'm driving myself crazy with pronunciations. <laughs> when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, Apollonia, okay, I got it. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world are now here in our community, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So this passage is a real, a real page turner, a lot of action here. Um, I love... I love that the person that housed uh, Paul and Bar Paul and Silas was Jason, because I can picture our good friend from New Life Fellowship, our pastoral elder, Jason Harmon. I can picture the Harmons housing uh, housing Paul and then being uh, getting in trouble for doing so and uh, propagating the gospel that way. I can picture them actually doing that. So this is Jason's, uh, our elder Jason's namesake, the Jason from this passage who helped Paul and his companions. And that's a pretty cool thing. So the founding, the founding of this church was very tumultuous, as you can see. Uh, over three weeks, uh, Paul shared and reasoned with the Jews and the God-fearing people who are uh, non-Jewish people by heritage, who, uh, who feared God, who believed in God, but they just weren't Jewish by their, their racially. Uh, and then also some very prominent women in the community and people that were um, just miscellaneous non-Jewish Gentile people. So... Paul uh, reaches all this big group of people, convinces them of the power of the gospel, and he and and they are they're changed, they are transformed over just three weeks, and after three weeks, Paul and Paul and his companions are kicked out, and they are they they go to Berea, they're kicked out, they can't come back, and this young church is is left to its own devices, but not really because these people received the Holy Spirit that Paul was testifying about, so. It's amazing to see what God can do in just a few weeks. 
And, uh, and as you can see, there was a great amount of opposition in Thessalonica. There was a lot of people that were against um, Jesus there, and, and his followers. There was great hostility with all the rulers towards Jesus and his followers because um, Paul was saying that um, because Paul was saying that Caesar was not Lord, but that Jesus was. Someone's mic got unmuted, and I'm hearing some weird noises here. Hold on one moment. Just need to mute everybody. Oh, it's not letting me mute. Well, can you hear me? I can hear you, Aaron. Oh, uh, I can't. I can't mute you from here, unfortunately. Here it says mute. Sorry. That's fine. You know, it's okay now. Hmm. So good to hear from the Jenkses. Yep, sermon's going good, right? We're all good. I can't mute you from here, so you'll have to check it out on your end. In the meantime. Um, Thessalonica, back to Thessalonica uh, a place hostile to the gospel and to the followers of Christ but nonetheless a large number of converts from, from a big slice of society was in Thessalonica uh, Thessalonica was a, was a seaport and it was a communication and trade center so it was a, 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 an urban area with a lot of influence and it had a lot of diversity in terms of its population which was about 200,000 people and uh, there, there were just a lot of a lot of um, different races of people there that lived there and, and coexisted, a lot of different religions, um, both Jewish people and, you know, countless other uh, religious followers there. So Paul comes into this place, and just like Jesus before him, and he goes to the synagogue, the, the place he goes to the Jewish people first, because it is from their history, it's from their scriptures, that the Messiah is prophesied about. So Paul goes to the synagogues over three weeks, and he explains from the Jewish scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah who had to come and die and be resurrected, resurrected to fulfill God's promised plan. And this is something Paul was really good at at this point. You'll remember uh, in, in the book of Acts, constantly people like Stephen, uh, who, who was stoned for his faith, and, and Paul and, other, and others of the disciples and apostles would go and reason with the Jewish people from their own scriptures share the gospel, and many of them would come to faith in Christ. And some others would, um, you know, so, some, some of them came to faith in Christ, which is, which is amazing, Jewish people, but it makes a little bit more sense that the Jewish people would come to faith in Christ because the Messiah is prophesied about in their own scriptures. But one of the really impactful things about the work of the Holy Spirit that you have to think about here is that people were coming to Christ who were not Jewish, who in fact had other beliefs, and they were, not, they were being won over to not only the, hist the, the Jewish scriptures and their prophecies about Jesus, but also Jesus himself. You know, they were it's like two extra steps that people were being won over. And the only real explanation we can have for that is that it was a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. A radical transformation in this crowd. And so Paul shares in their synagogue over three Sundays, and, uh, and what happens is that some of the Jewish people became jealous, it says, of Paul's message and ministry, seeing the influence that he had. And um, 
and and those those Jewish leaders rounded up what's what's called a, li, a, a a cast of bad characters from the marketplace, which sounds so bad. You know, they they looked and they found some some rough people uh, in order to intimidate, beat up, maybe kill Paul and his companions. And so Paul and Silas fled from Jason's house and, with the help of the believers, left at night. And something I want you to think about, uh, as far as like the prohibition of Paul and his 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 uh, his people coming back, is that f- from this point forward, Paul is not allowed to come back into Thessalonica, as long as the rulers are in leadership that banned them from 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 the city, they're not going back. So think about that: three weeks of ministry, amazing fruit. I'm sure a strong desire to disciple all of those people who uh, were coming to the faith and then separated, physically separated. And for, the, for, for their lifetimes, they would not be able to step back into, into Thessalonica. So that's the background of First and Second Thessalonians. It's a young church. It's beloved by Paul and actually the recipient of the very first letter that Paul ever wrote. First Thessalonians is thought to be his earliest letter to any church earlier than romans earlier than corinthians or galatians or colossians or ephesians this was his earliest letter which is a very interesting thing to think about in first thessalonians 2 17 through 20 paul makes a comment that probably many of us can identify with in a new way during the season in our in our world history and maybe this is one of the reasons the holy spirit wants us to study this text but listen to this in, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17, Paul says, But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Listen to that. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. This is, a, this is quite an intense statement that Paul is making. And I, I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. I mean, we, have, we certainly have an intense longing to be together as well. You know, we, we were seeing... God do some amazing things on new life and seeing some things come together and, and seasons changing in our church, a season of pruning and moving into the next, um, the next season. And all of a sudden, we are, we are separated physically. And I like how Paul puts it, in person, not in thought. You know, we are bound together in heart, but we are separated in person. And um, one of the things I think is so interesting as a statement that Paul made, Paul says, we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time. That's an interesting statement for Paul to make, because Paul, you know, if you will, is the father of the Thess- Thessalonian church. But when he and his companions are torn out of the fellowship after three short weeks of ministry, he says the phrase, we were orphaned by being separated from you. So Paul, the founder and father of this church, says he was orphaned by being separated from his, his offspring, his child, the church. And here we see this amazing dynamic of the Holy Spirit. You know, in the Holy Spirit, when you birth and grow spiritual children by making disciples, they turn around and become the very people that keep you going and end up nourishing your soul. Because in the end, 
in this ecosystem, God is the teacher. God is the master discipler. God is the shepherd. And no matter who we disciple, we are all being discipled by God. And we end up being discipled by the people that we win to Christ and disciple. It's an amazing thing in the ecosystem. So Paul, even in the short three weeks, felt that he was orphaned by his crown, by his joy, these people that he had won to Christ and built the church with. That's how he feels. And I think a lot of us feel very similarly that in this time of physical separation, um, that, we, that, that, deep, that deep feeling of just being on our own, some of us are struggling with that. I mean, Paul, you know, who's writing this letter, he knows what it feels like to be physically separated and unable to come together with the body of believers who he considers a spiritual family. He knows what that's like. Paul knows what it's like to be suddenly snatched away and feeling spiritually orphaned all of a sudden. And I'm convinced that if Paul were living in our time, in our day, we would not have First and Second Thessalonians. Probably he'd be on Zoom and Facebook Live trying to connect with his sheep. But this is his way of connecting with them and continuing to disciple them. And we are blessed for having it because he wrote it down. And Paul was able to process that, feel, that orphan feeling by establishing and sharing an eternal perspective, a cosmic perspective over uh, this situation he was in. Um, and I think that this cosmic perspective, this larger eternal perspective that Paul espouses in the midst of his grief at being separated physically from this church is something that would be very beneficial for us to park on and think about during this time. So what do I mean by eternal perspective or cosmic perspective that Paul brings up? You know, what I mean is Thessalonians is the only book in the Bible that ends every chapter with a reference to the second coming of Christ at the end times. Every single chapter of Thessalonians ends with a reference to the second coming of Christ and the end times. So for Paul, when he's thinking about his discouragement at being socially physically separated from the people that he loves, from his spiritual family, from feeling orphaned. For Paul, the medicine for not only surviving, but thriving in a time of extremely difficult physical separation is focusing on the eternal and the ultimate hope that we all have in Jesus Christ. This hope in Jesus' second coming and the end of all things when God brings history to its close and sets everything right bringing the fulfillment and fullness of his kingdom to bear on us and on the world in which we live is what Paul has in mind. Paul takes that hope he has in Christ's second coming and, and the end of all things. He overlays that over his discouragement, and he's given hope and strength to go forward. And I think that this is still extremely relevant to us. And I pray that we are able to take this nourishment from Paul that he's trying to give us as we continue, like Paul, to, to suffer physical separation from the church body we love and from, from the people we love in general, from the people that we are physically separated from, the hope that we have in Christ in his second coming and in, in, in the fact that he will bring all things uh, to their proper closing and he will renew all things in the new heaven and new earth, this hope we have in Christ can be a medicine that not only allows us to survive and get by, but to thrive and grow during this strange time in history in which we're living. You know, I talked to I talked to many of you during the week. Um, you know, over the last few months, you know, we've been chatting, and I know that people are really longing to be together. You know, I know. And it's not just us; it's every 
every church, every pastor, every 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 person that I that I talk to, um, in, in in church families especially, the longing that we feel is like being separated from our physical birth families because we love each other. We're a family, and we've been knit together in Christ. But ultimately, I think what Paul is saying to us is that this hope in Jesus' second coming and the end of all things in Christ can bring a hope and an eternal perspective to this current suffering we're going through that cannot be shaken by anything. So the, so the book of First Thessalonians, it, it covers the second coming of Christ constantly. At the end of every chapter, it talks about our hope in the second coming of Jesus and offers us this eternal perspective to overlay over our present sufferings. And I think this is something we're going to learn a lot from in the coming weeks. But First Thessalonians doesn't just cover the second coming of Christ and the end times. You know, the book talks about a lot of topics which are framed in the perspective of considering Christ's second coming and how short our lives really are on the earth. And this is not, uh, not different from Jesus' own teaching. Jesus taught people to live as though the end was imminent. His parables are all pointed in that direction. So we learn a lot about a lot of different topics from First and Thessalonians, um, but the fundamental framework for all of that is when you live with the idea that Jesus could return at any moment. You know how you live and how you how you how you move through the world changes. It changes. I remember when um, a few years ago a Christian company released something called. Um, what was it? Six months to live or something. And the idea was, if you had only this amount of time to live, what would you do differently? What changes would you make in your life? You know, what would you, um, what, what would you trust God for? What would you move in? What would you repent of and change if you knew you had only a limited time? And the whole idea of this study was to put that urgency into our hearts and that framework of the eternal perspective that the judge is standing at the door. Jesus could come back at any time. You know, are we asleep or are we awake? And uh, the, the author of Ephesians says, Wake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. You know, throughout the whole scriptures, and that started with the teachings of Christ, we're taught to live with a sense of urgency, in a sense that you know, Jesus is coming back. How are, we, how are we living? How are we experiencing suffering, whether it be large-scale suffering or small-scale suffering? Um, certainly we're not, being, we're not suffering like, uh, like Paul was being beaten and within an inch of his life and, and you know, threatened uh, to be murdered and those kinds of things that Paul went through. But there is a certain amount of suffering that, to various degrees, all of us are going through. How do we experience that suffering? And how can we get the eternal perspective to help us to not only survive through this time, but to thrive. And so Paul teaches a lot about not just the second coming of Christ, but about all kinds of different things in the context of uh, preparing for Christ's second coming. Paul talks about avoiding uh, sexual immorality in part of this book, which we'll talk about. He talks about loving each other. He talks about living as good citizens in a sinful world. This is a topic that's coming up on a daily or weekly basis in my life with different people inside and outside of our church. How do we live as a good citizen in a sinful world, in a fallen world? Paul teaches the Thessalonians about the hope of the resurrection in Christ. 
and he warns them to be prepared at all times for Christ's return. Now, Paul, much like his master Jesus, advised people that due to our human nature to put everything off until the last minute, then cram for the test right at the very end, we who are wise must instead live with the perspective that Christ could return at any moment and focus on being found ready when Jesus comes, to focus on being found ready, a workman or workwoman approved when he comes. Um, I, I preached, I remember a few years ago, about perspective on time. The time between Christ's first coming and the present day is really not very long in the context of human history. It's, it's been 2,000 years of time between Christ's first coming and the present day. Um, again, there were much longer periods of time uh, in biblical history before all of this happened. And um, really, it might seem slow. It might be something where people think it's never going to happen. But, you know, Jesus is going to come back. And it could be at any time. And I don't know about you, but I mean, I do feel these days, if I'm honest, I, I feel the urgency in my own life that Christ could return at any time, especially when life becomes so destabilized in the last century. Um, think of all we've lived through, even just from 1920 to 2020. Um, all the world has been through. It's, um, it's been intense. It's been intense. And when things are comfortable for us, we get into a routine, we kind of fall asleep. But at times like this, we're kind of jarred awake. And I, I don't know about you, I do feel a little bit more of an urgency about um, Christ's return. That I don't know where history is going or when it's going to get there. And uh, I know a lot of people scoff at these kinds of ideas, and they think that uh, it's a silly thing to be waiting for Jesus to come back and for, for, for things to be renewed and for Jesus to bring, bring about the end of human history. Um, but there's been scoffers throughout all of human history. Um, and the only reason that God says he's delaying in returning is to give people time to repent and come to him because of his love for the world. In 2 Peter 3, 3 through 13, um, this, could, this could have been written by one of our contemporaries. 2 Peter 3, 3 to 13, it says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Again, you know, laughing at what you believe, thinking it's stupid, thinking it's never going to happen. They will say, where is this coming that Jesus promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed, speaking of the flood. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Listen, you know, this, this whole picture of fire is, is talking about testing everything for what it's made of. Um, and everything will be laid bare when Jesus comes back. There will be no secrets and no darkness. Um, everything, every choice we make, everything we do, everything in our world will be laid bare and it be very plain to everybody. 
um, when God comes and looks at things. It says in verse 11, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So I don't, I don't claim to be an expert on the end times or, or know exactly when timetables of when things are going to happen. I don't understand 100% everything that's in this, this passage from um, 2 Peter 3, 3 to 13. But I do believe that history is moving towards a conclusion that that will be concluded when Christ comes again and he was going to set everything right. All the injustice of the world will be, will be made just. Um, everything will be laid bare. And every person's work will be will be evaluated for what it is. And if if our work and what we do um, survives through the judgment of God, whatever passes through the flame of God's judgment there is going to be a beautiful building blocks for our life to come with God. And everything that is just a waste is, is just that. It's a waste and um, and not good for anything. In Thessalonians... Paul's perspective is, yeah, we're suffering, we're physically separated, this is terrible, I want to be with you, I feel so orphaned, but Christ could come at every, any moment, guys. Um, Christ could come at any moment, so let's focus on the eternal perspective, remembering that our temporal life is just a short vapor, and then there's eternity, then there's eternity. And um, our present sufferings are not comparable to the future glory when God comes and reveals Christ, and we who are in Christ are made renewed and made new. The present stuff we see in this suffering is nothing compared to the glory that will come. So let's prepare for the glory that will come. So, uh, you know, Paul, with this context in mind, he says, spiritually mature believers, they should, they should try to help each other. They should warn the idle, warn the people that are just idling, not really doing anything. They're becoming lazy. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Be kind to everyone. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks and test everything that's taught and avoid evil. This is just in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Um, with Jesus' second coming in mind and with the end of all things uh, coming at some point that we do not know, we who have wisdom and maturity should be doing all of these things for one another, should be encouraging one another, should be sharpening one another as long as we have um, time to do so. And I think that's just, just from that small section from 1 Thessalonians 5, you can just make that your to-do list in your, in your self-quarantine. Listen to this. Warn the idle. Well, maybe you shouldn't do that to anyone but yourself. You won't, you won't want to survive this, right? Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. No problem, right? Be kind to everyone. Be joyful. Pray continually, give thanks, uh, avoid evil. These are all things that we can do and be working on and thinking about in this time of uh, social distancing, uh, in our households, with the people in our lives. Um, because Jesus' second coming is, is around the corner, so to speak, and maybe literally, um, we need to get to work. But not get to work on productivity and what we did before this all went down. We need to get to work on on us and on preparing ourselves to be found ready when Christ comes. So this is the series we're going to be launching into. I, I, I want to just do an overview 
and give you a taste for First and Second Thessalonians. I think it's a it's a word for our time. It's timely. I think we're going to be encouraged to yes to to grieve and go through the the suffering that we're going through to greater and lesser degrees right now, and the uncomfortableness of, of life right now, but also to to look beyond that and realize that uh, there's more than just this present moment and. Whether we come together in three months, six months, 12 months, three years, six years, 12 years, God forbid. Um, however long that time is, it's it's not comparable to, um, to when Christ is going to be revealed and all of our suffering is in the context of eternity. Um, there's so much work to be done to be found ready and workmen and workwomen approved by God. I wanted to share as we're as we're closing uh, this teaching time. I hope you're excited about this series. I am. I, I love to go verse by verse and see what God says through the text, not avoiding anything, not skipping anything. I'm really excited for that. Um, but one of the things that, as I've studied Thessalonians, has really stuck out to me is here is a book with an incredible amount of affirmation for a group of people that are dearly loved. And this is the word of God. You know, in this book, there's not strong rebuke. There's not strong correction. There's not conviction. And there's no um, condemnation for sin or, or, or some of the features we find in other others of Paul's later letters that are needed. Those things are needed. But in this letter, is just a simple message of you're doing a good job. Keep going. And I think that's such an amazing, amazing thing. You know, God is all light and no darkness. God is holy and perfect and all these things. But God, obviously, he came into our experience through Christ and he um, suffered like we suffer, went through what we go through and and is sympathetic to our weaknesses. And even though God is perfect and anything that we hold up before him would be like filthy rags compared to his glory, you know, it doesn't mean that God is coming down on us all the time and, and, um, and saying, you know what, that was good, but not good enough for me. Um, what I see in Thessalonians is the voice, the tender voice, the tender parental voice of love, of approval, saying, you're doing a great job, all things considered. Keep going. Keep going. Persevere. What I see in, in this letter is, is uh, the voice of God acknowledging the difficulty of a circumstance and then saying, but you're doing a good job underneath it. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Uh, Jesus is coming. is right around the corner. Continue working and moving and encouraging one another. This is not all there is. You're doing a good job. And I wonder if that's something that you can hear today. Um, I, I re- as I was thinking about Thessalonians, you know, we're, we, we can be very hard on ourselves, right? And um, as believers, followers of God, some of us more than others. But God's word sometimes is, under these present circumstances, you're doing pretty well. And you need to not feel condemned, not feel like you're a crummy Christian or person. Um, but maybe maybe you just need to stay the course. 
maybe you just need to switch your perspective from the temporal to the eternal and just be, be thinking about uh, Jesus' second coming and finding hope that there will be a resurrection, there will be a time when all disease and death are dealt with by Christ. That's true. There will be a time when, um, it says in Revelation, there will be no, no more suffering, no more death, no more pain, no more disease, no more viruses, no more separation, for the former things will pass away in Christ. There will be a time when Jesus says, it is done. It's finished. Everything is made right. And everything will be added up in Christ. That time is coming. But in the midst of a struggle like we're going through now, maybe you just need to hear this, this, this track of God's voice to you saying, you know what, you're doing pretty well, all things considered, under these circumstances. Good job. Keep going. Keep moving. Encouraging you not to lose hope. Because there's always always more hope than we know, as a friend of mine is fond of saying. There's more hope. And the God, our God is a God of hope. And he's not condemning you. You know, God... Jesus did not come into the world to, to condemn the world, but to save the world. God is not here to condemn Christians, and Jesus is not here to condemn um, his children. He's, he came to save us. And God is not unfamiliar with our weaknesses and our struggles. He went through everything we go through and, and got through it perfectly. But he has, he's familiar with our sorrows, familiar with our loneliness, he understands. And I think that maybe, maybe you just need to hear God say, you're doing a good job. Don't be so hard on yourself. Keep going. Don't lose hope. This is only temporary. Eternity in Christ will be like nothing you've ever seen. Until then, we have the Holy Spirit comforting, guiding. But this morning, don't just don't lose hope. God of hope, we can we come to you this morning, uh, thankful for this letter, thankful for what's to come. We thank you that someday. Death will be swallowed up in life. Darkness will be eclipsed by light. The disease will be completely eradicated. That all separation and relational disconnect and, and uh, darkness will be resolved. There will be no sorrow, suffering, or pain. For all that we see in this world will pass away and give birth to a new heaven and a new earth. I pray that you would implant this perspective in us as we are studying your word, Jesus, that we would be a people that don't lose hope because we have faith that you are trustworthy, that your promises are true, and that those scoffers might say, hey, it's never going to happen. It's been this many years. That you predicted that, 
and you have a you you are being deliberately trying to save more people because of your great heart of love. Uh, so we we pray that those cynical voices and scoffing voices that we we take in that our, we would be loosened from their hold and that we would be able to embrace hope today, true hope in Christ for this life, for the next life. I thank you for the hymn that says, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. That in Christ, we get to taste the future kingdom in this present world in which we live. So even in its imperfect state, God, we can still experience your grace, your presence, the reality of your love for us in the midst of our suffering. Knowing that even this suffering that we experience is not is not going to last forever. That there is eternity coming where everything is set right. And plant that hope in our heart today. Let the word plant in us deeply. I pray along with, uh, with Jesus, he said, because of the increase of wickedness in those days, in the final days, the love of most will grow cold. But the man or woman that perseveres in love and faith will be saved. Pray that our, our love would be, would be warmed, our love for you, our love for one another, that we would be people that are found ready when you come, and that this series of messages that you're giving to us through Thessalonians um, would bring transformation, give us your perspective, Thank you for your your grace for us, God, for your loving voice that says, you know what, today I just wanted to say, you're doing well. Keep going. Don't lose hope. Hey, you stumbled. Don't let yourself fall. There's more grace than you know and more hope than you can imagine. Let that voice ring in each of our ears this morning, this week. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. Great is your faithfulness.